Thank you for listening to this selection from bradhambrick.com. Brad serves as pastor of counseling at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina, and is excited to produce resources that equip believers and resource churches to care well for one another in their community. We pray that this serves you well, and we hope that you'll consider utilizing other resources from bradhambrick.com for your personal growth and ministry endeavors. And so step six, learning my gospel story um, by which God gives meaning to my experience. And here what we're trying to do is we have acknowledged what happened. We've understood its impact. We've seen the messages that it would be destructive to come out of that. We've tried to put those messages away. We have mourned the wrongness of what happened. And now we're looking for some way to make sense of this. Nothing that will explain it away. That would minimize it in a way that would not do justice uh, to the experience. But something that does give it meaning in a way that captures hope. Uh, Gary and Mona again speak. She suddenly realized she had lost not only her marriage and her husband, but also part of herself. There was absolutely nothing left to hang on to. She found herself completely insufficient for the first time in her life. Uh, And terror gripped her. She came to understand that she had put Gary above God. It was not that she thought Gary was God, especially not now, but she looked to Gary to be her source of strength, of comfort, and of love. They say our faith grew because we found that we were not enough, and God was. It, and here we, we hit a reality. And the reality is that overcoming the effects of sexual sin is beyond our capacity. It is bigger than we are. When we say, I can't do this, without a sense of pessimism and despair, we can say, you know what, we're right. Uh, this is one that, that we can only overcome with God's help. Now, I would also say here, just as a, as a caveat, the pain over your betrayal does not mean you have an idolatry of your spouse. Uh, she's referencing that there. Uh, I'll be honest for you, I think the most tempting idol for any person in marriage is their spouse. I think the person that I am most prone to put before God in my life is Sally. Uh, it, it is one of those things but I don't know that that is altogether a bad thing. In the sense that I am going to live on the border of some temptation. There is no way where I am going to adjust my values and priorities to such a degree that there is not going to be any temptation. And if I could choose to live on one border, it would be on the border that says, I love my wife immensely. And I am almost always on the brink of putting her before God. And I just want to live there knowing the dangers of that and the temptations that it would bring. But what I would not want you to take from this quote is the sense that if I am hurt by this, that somehow I was putting my spouse before God. But I love that statement, and God was enough. Because that's one of the gospel themes that we want to begin to experience. Uh, As Christians, we may know that, 
But in the midst of a circumstance like this, we are going to experience that in new ways that we may not have been able to fathom otherwise. Now, in terms of learning my gospel story, I'm going to give us five big questions uh, that as we seek to piece through what we have been through, that we're going to have to answer. And the first of those is, who am I now? You know, where Mona would say, I lost part of myself. Earlier she said, I'm the only person who surprises me now. And so a few things that we learn about ourselves. One, we are unchanged and we are changed. And as contradictory as that sounds, both are true. Uh, On one level, you are and always will be and only will be you. You cannot write a letter to the old you, and the old you cannot write a letter to the new you, and we can't get in the flux capacitor with Michael J. Fox and go visit each other. There is one me who transcends this experience. And when we begin to say, this changed who I am, I am a new person, then what we have done is we have given this experience the full power and influence of our birth and rebirth. And we have begun to make it an event that rivals those things in our life. Now at the same time that I say that you are unchanged and there is only one you, and that the events of our birth and new birth are larger than this, I want to come behind and very quickly say, we are also changed by this. We we will never have the same innocence that we had before. We will mark time as before and after. Certain places, certain words, certain objects will not have the same meaning that they did before. And those are things that we are changed. There is a core me, not quite on the level of Uh, that when we became saved, behold, all things became new. You are a new creation. It's not on that level, but it did change me. Another thing about me now, I am free to choose. And that one can be hard to see. Because when the thing that you want to choose most, to stop the pain, to prevent this from ever having happened, to make the healing process be faster or neater, is unavailable to you, it can quickly feel like you don't have any freedom to choose at all. Um, But you still have that freedom to choose. But again, you throw on top of that all of the things that you should do, all of the advice that you're getting of what should happen next, and that moral constraint again begins to feel like, do I have any freedom to choose? And this is where I think it is so important to remember God's patience that we learn during that phase of mourning. That God is not just trying to hurry me somewhere, whipping me, ha boy, ha! Get there! That Psalm 23 says that He walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. And I do not believe He is a shepherd who impatiently drives His sheep as if He was fearful and unable to tolerate where we are. It is from His strength and presence guiding us through that that reminds us that we have freedom and protection in the midst of it. And then finally, in terms of who we are, we are loved by God. 
A crisis has the way of changing everything that it touches. If you've experienced a burglary, uh, a burglary, your home becomes a crime scene. A window becomes an entry point. That crisis changes things. And when we go through a marital crisis on this level, it can be very easy that those themes come in of, I am unloved, I am rejected, I am forsaken. Uh, But this is where, and I don't want this to come across as spiritually trite or cliche, but what God says of us and His attitude and disposition towards us must be truer than anything that our spouse has towards us. That is where our strength and sense of stability will come from. And it is very tempting during a moment like this that we allow our spouse's actions to define who we are. And it is their words of acceptance. It is their words of love that make us either feel loved or accepted instead of what Christ did on our behalf. And I say this hopefully not coming across strong-handed at all, but in this sense, in our suffering, we must submit to the Lordship of Christ every bit as much as we do in our sin. When we submit to the fact that He says, I am His dearly and beloved child. He says, I am His bride. He says that He loves me and He dances over me with joy. And I must submit to those statements every bit as much in my suffering as I submit to His moral commands in my sin. Now we go on and we see some of these other big questions. Uh, Gary and Mona say, the foundation we rebuild on will be the foundation intended for marriage. God Himself. That foundation is sound because God is trustworthy. We rebuild the trust as if we were rebuilding the house brick by brick. The house fell, but God's foundation is still safe. And here we see that betrayal forces us back to the basics, which is exactly what most marriages need anyway. But it does, you hear in this quote, it forces us to ask the question of God. Who are you? Who is God? And I'll give a a few points that I think are particularly relevant in understanding our gospel story in light of the betrayal of sexual sin. One, God is faithful. It is so easy to make God in our own image or in the image of our circumstances. And when when our circumstances are chaotic, when our spouse is unfaithful, it is so easy to begin to view God in their image. And that is part of that suffering story that we have to resist. Secondly, God is our pioneer. And I think it's in His being our pioneer that we see His faithfulness. One of the the most pain questions that I hear couples ask me is, is there anybody that we can talk to? Is there anybody who you know who has been through this and they've made it through and their marriage is better? And we could hear their story. We could find out what worked from them. We could draw on their strength. We could somehow take a hold of what it was that got them through this. 
And in that moment, there's usually this kind of awkward moment where it feels like we're talking about a fairy tale. But I would contend that is what the gospel is all about. That that is what the gospel is. It is the restoration of God and His bride. The most frequent and powerful images used to describe the sinfulness of the church is that we were an unfaithful spouse. And even when we got caught, we would go around whoring around with other gods and other idols. And they wouldn't satisfy. And we still wouldn't come back. And we would say, God, I don't think you can please me anymore. I'm not sure I love you. I don't know if I ever did. I think these are the things that can really make me happy. And God pioneered the road that you were traveling. And it was an impossible road before His God-man feet cleared the path. And it is His grace that we draw on. One who has walked those steps with us and for us and will carry us as we walk those steps. He is our pioneer. And finally, He is powerful. When, when we face something this big, it's going to do one of two things. It is either going to dwarf our view of God in the sense that we are going to see the challenge in front of us and we are going to ask the question, could God be bigger than this? And our problem is going to be huge and in light of it, our view of God is going to shrink as our fears grow. Or we are going to face the problem and we are going to ask the question, wow, you mean God is bigger than this? And it's going to give us a whole new frame of reference for understanding His power and majesty, His level of involvement, of compassion, of understanding. And, and one of those two things happen, and that is the battle between the suffering story and the gospel story that goes on in the midst of these circumstances. Now, Earl and Sandy Wilson, another couple who were uh, courageous enough to put their story into writing, uh, they said, one's past is never over except in God's eyes. Our failures are woven into the fabric of our lives. The sinner can rejoice in God's goodness and forgiveness, while at the same time being reminded of his own vulnerability and help to stand against ongoing temptation. And here we have to remember our life is a living story. What was is the context for what will be. And the question gets asked out of this, who is my spouse now? How do I see them? Okay, I get what you said about how I see me. I get what you said about how I see God. I get that. I didn't betray me. I can kind of see now that God didn't betray me. How do I see my spouse? A few points here. View them as a sinner, not as sin. We have a strong tendency to name people by their weakness and failure. Um, that tendency, instead of viewing them as one who committed adultery, as one who looked at pornography, we see them as unfaithful. If you've ever read the story Pilgrim's Progress, 
uh, where John Bunyan would give names to the characters based upon their most defining attribute. And Christian, who's the main character on this journey, he would walk with faithful for a while, and he would walk with wisdom for a while, and he would come across worldly wisdom. And they were, in many ways, we can do that with our spouse where we name them by that defining attribute. And part of the gospel says that we do not define them by their sin, while at the same time recognizing that they are a sinner. And that leads us to the next piece. They are a fruit bearer. For better or worse, better would be repentance, other-mindedness, authenticity, vulnerability, patience, concern. Worse would be continued sin, self-pity, selfishness, isolation, demandingness, defensiveness, going back and forth. For better or worse, your spouse will, build, will bear fruit that reveals their current condition. And so if you ask the question, if I don't define them as unfaithful, how do I define them? I define them by their current fruit. And it's at this stage that, that if, if we are fair, we will acknowledge rarely is the betraying spouse showing as much or the kind of fruit as we would like. Uh, fruit does take time to grow. But we want to define them by the fruit that is growing now. This is why I say the number one piece that we want to measure and look at is honesty. Because it is the piece that can grow first. Even when I am so wrapped up in overcoming my own sin and my emotions fluctuate and there are times when I may give in to pornography and those kinds of things which are wrong. Honesty can be one of those pieces of fruit that shows up first. And then third piece that I would say we define uh, our spouse by is capable of change. Hope is not about where we are. Hope is about where we can get to by God's grace. And one of the questions that we are forced to ask is do we believe our spouse is capable of change? Now in terms of giving them some guidelines for that, hopefully the false love study, if they are willing, it will give them a process by which they can engage instead of it just being this generic nebulous, I'm trying, I'm trying, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trying, I'm just kind of running in circles that there can be a sense of direction. Because oftentimes that sense of flailing very much can happen. And it can be one of those things that makes us doubt whether change is possible. But part of what we understand about people in light of the gospel is that we are capable of change regardless of the darkness of our sin. And that kind of takes us to the next piece here where uh, Robert Jones, he says, when we examine the Bible's teaching on forgiveness, it is helpful to distinguish two levels. We cultivate attitudinal or heart forgiveness before God concerning all offenders, and we extend transacted or granted forgiveness to those offenders who repent. Yet, and, and we keep, again, we're leading towards forgiveness. This is still pre-forgiveness. And I think part of Forgiving, that's important. One of the questions we have to ask here in this section is what is sin? And I think the most obvious thing about sin in light of our discussion is that sin is spiritual adultery. 
But too often, we use that as this flippant little phrase that just means really bad. It's almost as if it's become a biblically approved descriptive expletive. Spiritual adultery. Uh, It's one of those things that we say when we want to drive it home. And sometimes this kind of phrase is used to turn the tables. Uh, It's almost as if, well, you know, I committed adultery on you, but you committed adultery against God too, just like I did. This is not at all about turning the tables. But we do in this see God's response towards sin. He was upset by it. Sin will bear His wrath one way or another. We'll come to that in just a moment. And God would accept nothing less than repentance as a response to covenant breaking with Him. And by understanding sin in light of what has all of our sin is towards God, it lets us see that we're not holding to the things that we're expecting just to be mean. We're doing this because this is the way that God designed restoration to occur. Now, second thing about sin is sin is illogical. It, and this is coming back to that why question that won't go away. We, you know, we can understand the motives of sin. You know, everything that was covered in false love in chapter 3. We can understand the unhealthy aspects of our personal lives or the marriage and how it created a more intense environment for temptation. But those things don't add up. A necessary sin. You know, we can see the genuine fruit of repentance. We can be encouraged by the transparency or closeness and honesty that develops. We can commit to plans for a healthier marriage and really grow in a cautious optimism for the future that's ahead. But even these things don't add up. And one of the things that we have to realize is sinning against a God who loves you makes as much sense as cheating against a spouse who loves you. There is no point in which we're going to look at sin, adultery or any other sin, and say this makes sense. Adultery is just as illogical, much more painful, but just as illogical as every other sin. Why would I steal when there is a God who says He will provide for me? Why would I lie when I would know that there is a God who would protect me? Why would I covet when there is a God who knows my needs even before I ask them? My sins don't make sense. And when I repent to them, I repent as illogically saying, I bought into these lies. And because these lies made sense to me, these actions made sense to me. And I followed them. And I'm still kind of wooed by them, but I know they're lies. And that is, that is really how far we can go in understanding sin. And then finally, sin is a conquered enemy. Sin may not have to submit to logic, because it can't, it's illogical. But sin must submit to God. If your spouse is unrepentant, his or her sin will not reign free. That sin will meet a greater pain than it caused you and an equal pain to what it caused God in hell. 
if your spouse is repentant, his or her sin will not get off free, fading into forgetfulness. That sin will meet a greater pain than it caused you and an equal pain to what it caused God on the cross of Calvary. Sin is not merely erased. It is paid in full. And then one final piece here uh, on step step 6. Believers need to dispel from their minds the myth that if you have forgiven someone, you love that person. And you love that person, you will never bring up the past. In reality, the past is inextricably woven into the present and impacts the future. Here I would say forgiveness is not God's silencer. Um, if you've seen the movie Austin Powers, when they go, this, the gospel is not God's version of that. I'm really struggling today. Gospel. It was really hurtful when you didn't. Gospel. I'm really kind of Jesus. That is not what the gospel is. It, and so the question I would bring here is, is love worth pain? And ultimately, I think we have to say yes. Because life without vulnerability is not life. Uh, probably the only thing that I remember from my college philosophy class uh, was the day that the professor asked, what is the difference between the finest silk rose and a real rose that makes the real one more precious more valuable, and more desired. He said it's vulnerability. That's what allows you to hold it with a soft hand like you would hold fine china instead of just flipping it around like it was a piece of plastic. And when we say, what is it that's going to give life to relationship? It is vulnerability. And that means that love requires the risk of pain. 